0: Before we get started on today's interview, I just wanted to hop on for a minute and give you a little bit of an idea of what you're about to hear. I really enjoyed talking with Robbie Perry. I've known him for several years, but never been able to just sit down and have this kind of conversation with him. I will fully introduce him in just a couple of minutes on the episode, but he spent almost 20 years of his career being a fraud fighter for issuing banks. For those of you who aren't familiar with that term, that's the term within the payments ecosystem for credit card companies, the companies that issue the credit cards. Sometimes they're banks like Chase, and he worked for them for a very long time. And sometimes they're uh, standalone credit card companies like Capital One, who he also worked for. I really enjoy getting his perspective uh, from the issuer side. This is an area that often is a blind spot for e-commerce merchants, uh, mostly because they really fight fraud in silos. And there's a big part of me that wants that to change uh, for a lot of reasons. And you know that I am passionate about information sharing and collaboration, and so we will talk a lot about that on this episode. Also, we were planning on just doing one episode, and about two thirds of the way in, I realized, oh, I haven't even gotten through half of my questions. So, I sent him a little note and said, hey, would you mind coming back for a part two? And he was happy to. So, you have that to look forward to next week. I solicited questions from a lot of people in my network, both through LinkedIn and a couple of my collaboration calls, and. I wasn't super surprised, but I was happy to receive so many questions. And something I really appreciate about this interview is there were no topics off uh, off limits for Robbie. Uh, part of that is because he no longer works for the issuing side. So there's some freedom in that. He now works for CentiLink, which is a solution provider that supports fintechs in fraud prevention. And he'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the second episode. Some of the things you are about to learn about is just really what the goals of issuing banks are. And we do talk about kind of this perception from e-commerce merchant side that because the fraud liability, the the financial liability of fraud for card not present merchants, which includes e-commerce and mobile, because the fraud liability and the financial liability of those transactions that are deemed fraudulent why on the merchant side a lot of times merchants think that card not pre- or that at least issuers will push card not present orders over despite the risk because it's not their money and he'll he'll address that and i was grateful that he did there's a lot of really interesting nuggets and tidbits that i think you will at least be helpful to inform your upcoming strategies especially around chargebacks and transaction analysis We talk a lot about uh, just his overall knowledge and experience from the issuer side and what he wants merchants to learn and what he hopes that they they learn and what he thought they could do differently when he was on that side and like I said, we'll answer a lot of your questions on this episode as well as next week's episode. So make sure that you are subscribed to Fraudology so you are alerted when part two comes out. It will be out on Tuesday, November 17th. And I look forward to hearing all your thoughts about this upcoming interview. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, I'm Carice Hendrick. My guest today has been a fraud fighter for the past 20 years, working for banks and companies such as J.P. Morgan Chase and Capital One on their card issuing side, as well as for one of the largest retailers in the world before landing in his newest role as fraud advisor for the fraud tech startup CentiLink. I've known Ravi Perry for several years now, though I don't think we've met in person yet. And I have always appreciated how open to collaboration and sharing information he was, especially as an issuer. In fact, he and one of his former colleagues were the only fraud professionals I knew on the issuing side that would happily return an email or hop on a phone call to discuss a new fraud trend that merchants were seeing or to investigate suspicious behavior on their bank's credit cards that merchants were seeing He became a sacred resource that I tried not to bother too much, but that I knew I could turn to to solve a mystery or make an introduction to a large merchant that needed to speak to them. So all of that said, I'm so grateful that Ravi was willing to be my guest today, and I'm excited for you all to get to know him better and learn from some of his experiences. Ravi, thanks so much for being here.
1: Carice, thank you so much for that introduction i am uh, very humbled by it and uh, excited as well to be with you and i think you're right i don't think we have ever met each other in person yet
0: no i met your former colleague at capital one in person but not you i think you were either you had left or i don't know maybe he got the short straw to have to go to the merchant conference i'm not sure but (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully one day we will get yeah. to meet in person. And yeah, I've been a big fan of yours, obviously, of the work you do to bring folks together, whether it be within the merchant world, the issuing world, just all the great information that you share on. on it's every time a LinkedIn post from you comes out, it's okay. There's going to be some other great, <laughs> you know, nugget or pearl of wisdom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so glad and I love it. And I would love to be able to do more collaboration with issuers as well as merchants, but maybe that's down, down the road a little bit. And something we'll definitely be talking about today about why those two entities don't always work together as much as they do with their peers. think I posted on this, but I posted on my LinkedIn last night as I was um, drafting up the outline. I wonder if a few people might have a question for someone that spent so long on the issuing side and just understands that side so much. And I was surprised I had, almost like 10 questions in just a few hours, some from really big companies, others from the people in the industry. We're going to try to get to as many as we can, but we might just have to have you back in that. I'm not complaining about, but I'll have to go easy on you this time so you'll want to. All
1: right. All right. Deal.
0: (laughs) So we'll just dive right in. You've been in fraud for two decades now. I'm not, I'm definitely not calling you old, but I am going to say that like a lot of times, even though I 15 years, 16 years isn't that long in one industry. I'm considered a veteran. So I'm always in awe of people that have been in it even longer than I have. But I'd imagine you didn't grow up dreaming about becoming a fraud expert. How did you get started in the industry? And more importantly, why do you stay?
1: No. Yeah. Great question to start out with. I am definitely old and Oh, sometimes I I feel older than I am on certain days. But yeah, I definitely did not, you know, grow up thinking, oh, I'm going to be a fraud investigator and a fraud expert.
0: Think any of us Uh, did? at least not in our generation.
1: No, not at all. And it's funny. my, My story started all the way back in 2001 when I had a job working tech support at this company and. They were laying us off. And so I was desperately looking for a job. And this is back in the Phoenix area. And I found Chase Manhattan Bank, which is now, you know, Chase Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. And they had a call center there and they were hiring for a customer service. And I was like, hey, that sounds about right. Because I worked in a call center with the whole tech support thing. And so I set up an interview. And unfortunately, my interview was scheduled for September 11th of 2000. Oh, no. So obviously, I did not interview that day.
0: It was actually uh, my I,
1: birthday as well, but that oh, was a whole other podcast. <laughs> it, yeah, it's one of those things where, right, everybody knows what, what they were doing and where they yeah. were at on that. Yeah. Um, and so, luckily, I, I did get to interview a few days later and was not offered the job. I mean, it's not qualified uh, for custard service. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, the hiring manager was like, hey, we've got this other job in fraud that, you know, Maybe you're interested in, and I was desperate. So I was like, yep, I'll take it. And so I started a job in basically a fraud call center with Mm -hmm. Chase Manhattan Bank and just answering calls from customers or reporting fraud or having questions about something. Back then we did card activations. Yeah. And so we did what we would consider high risk card activations. Just so just very basic entry level stuff, but it was a position where still it is the front lines and I got to be able to experience and just get my feet wet, right? And a lot of different fraud stuff and start asking questions like, how is this happening? And why do we, why does it work this way? And so I, I quickly found that I had a lot of interest in fraud and I was just good at it. at just understanding things. And I quickly worked my way up and took a couple different roles in, in different, what we call like support functions and then a couple of years later, I had my first like real investigations job and your merchant friends would probably be interested in this role because what we did at Chase, so I was a loss prevention investigator. Mm. And so we investigated every single credit card fraud claim that a customer made. Now, some of those investigations took two hours and two weeks. It just depended upon what was going on, but that was my, my introduction into working directly with merchants, because we would pick up the phone and call a merchant and ask them about a charge. Who did this? Do you have an invoice? Was it shipped somewhere? Was it picked up? All of that good stuff. Do you have a copy of some information you can send me? And so it was my first real experience, right, with working directly with merchants. Mm-hmm. And then obviously talking with customers. And we had a unique job where we were like one of the very few people at the bank that told the customer no. So, gather all this evidence. And superpower, <laughs> and yeah, we would call a mer- customer up and interview them, and at the end, be like, "Well, I'm sorry, fuck the X or Z merchant. The the merchandise was shipped to your address, so we're not going to accept this fraud claim. You're going to need to take it up with them."
0: Four of the days of friendly fraud, and you know more chargeback reason codes and all of that. Oh yeah, it was a much simpler time. To- yeah. Uh, and, and, but yeah, that was like my first experience with
1: investigations. And then eventually I moved into, uh, I chase what I call like the special forces of investigation. So we had a, <laughs> we had an investigations team. We were really small. We were only about 12 people and we were spread out across the country. We were assigned geographic areas and we just worked the biggest, baddest fraud cases. And that's where I really got to work with a lot of merchants, with not just like gathering information or sharing intelligence, but like working on investigations, working with law enforcement. I got to testify in court a lot and just really get to experience seeing a fraud investigation from start to finish and actually see people be prosecuted and be put in prison and, you know, ordered to pay millions of dollars in restitution.
0: And You were doing those investigations. Were they, I assume they were after the fact. So after the fraud had taken place and then were there chargebacks involved or was this separate from the chargeback process or where in the flow did those investigations
1: happen? No, good question. So a lot of investigations started like when the fraud was still ongoing. So we would have a bunch of fraud that happened. We've identified it. But the fraud is still continuing as we're investigating it because I've always been in the position of you can't strategize your way out of all the fraud, but you can't arrest your way out of it either. But you need to do both, right? Sometimes you just have to arrest the bad guy to stop the fraud. And so there were instances where that happened, where the fraud would just, it would be a lot less because we could put some strategies and controls in place, but eventually that bad guy was arrested. So yeah, absolutely. There would be chargebacks. And so, which would complicate things, right? Because the bank isn't the only victim now. Yeah. all of these merchants that are also financial victims, because we did chargebacks. And it it would get very interesting and convoluted a little bit. I bet.
0: Yeah. But But I picture like one of those police boards with all the different- Exactly. (laughs) Turn that charge down to where were they? And where they exactly. go, they buy, yeah, yeah, all the things.
1: It can get very <laughs> complicated, but, but yeah. And then, one of your questions too, there was like, why did I stay in fraud? Mm-hmm. And it was just, I just love it. I love the one thing I like is, it always is different. There's always something new. And even after doing this for 20 plus years, there's always some sort of, whether it's a new fraud scheme or a twist on an old one, there's just always yeah. something new where it's, man, I never thought of that or I've never seen that before. And Oh, yeah. yeah, that, and then obviously, like the whole payment you know ecosystem has completely changed over oh, yeah. the last twenty years, and so you have that aspect of it of how technology and just different businesses change that whole payment ecosystem, and then you, it's always great to catch the bad guys and so that that's always been my highlight there as well
0: <laughs> I can I think the majority of the people listening to this can really relate to. All of those reasons. I think there are just some of us who love to solve puzzles and mysteries and love to just put the pieces together. And and we like a challenge and have curiosity. And this is yep, absolutely, yeah, I I've, it's so cheesy, but I've often said that uh, most of us, at least in our generation, I think now they're this is changing, but uh, you know, fell into it by accident, but we stay on purpose. that's why it's like that. Again, absolutely. Yeah. And I had a very similar story. I started on the call center on the technical side and uh, then just got really fascinated by fraud and the rest was history. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and you're right. So many people have different but
1: very similar type of stories, right? Where you you just started out taking a job and. 20 years later, it becomes just something you love doing. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. So, yeah, and I think a lot of us came from humble beginnings. Like we weren't on the career track. And so we also have a lot of gratitude for being able to make a career out of this. I I know I can speak for myself on that for sure. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I look back at my career and
1: been blessed to have some great folks in my career that were mentors Mm -hmm. and teachers and coaches and trainers. And obviously I had some bosses that took a chance on me. I didn't have a lot of experience. And so people took a chance on me, especially when I was a part of the regional investigations team at Chase. I was surrounded by folks that had been in the banking world doing investigations for 20 plus years. People that were retired law enforcement, just folks that had just this incredible wealth of experience and knowledge that they passed on to me. They didn't have to do that, but they did. And I benefited greatly because of it. And it's something that I've tried to kind of get into the situation where I want to do that for other people now because it was, you know, such a huge benefit to me that, yeah, it just super grateful for those folks that were in my life professionally <laughs> that just passed on so much knowledge to me.
0: I can relate to a lot of that. There definitely were bosses I've had in my career where they weren't as you know they're what I learned from them was what not to do but the (laughs) big reason why I love to make introductions to people and be a people connector and help where I can whether I'm making a dollar on it or not and a lot of times it's not and that's okay it is because of the people that have helped me in my career and maybe they didn't work directly with me at the same company but because I learned from them within an organization, or at a conference, or whatever it was, that just benefited me so much that I know how valuable it is. And I also know how lonely and just hard it can be sometimes for companies that don't value risk to be a fraud fighter. And so I think it's important for the community and the industry to be supportive as well. So you and I, no question, are aligned on all of that, so as, absolutely as the majority of our listeners are on the e-commerce merchant side of fraud prevention, I hope that changes. I'd love to have everyone within the payments ecosystem be a part of it, and I know there are some of e- from each area, but I knowing the e-commerce e-com merchants as much as I do, I'm sure they would love to know everything about your time on the issuing side, but you also spend a little bit of time on the CMP merchant end of fraud fairly recently, actually. So I'd love to know what some of the biggest differences are about detecting and preventing fraud for an issuing bank versus an online retailer and just some of the things you saw that when you became an online retailer, you were like, oh, it really helps me to know that this is how the issuing bank does it because the majority of us are flying blind, not knowing that side.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's kind of two main things at play when it comes to that. One is I think for the most part, merchants and issuers just have completely different outlooks on what they think about fraud. Mm. And I think it's driven a lot by liability, Mm. right? Good or bad, organizations are going to be driven by what is costing them money and for an an issuer where they're losing money is identity theft type of fraud card present type of transactions so they're not losing a lot of money on card not present fraud, right uh, because of liability issues where on the flip side that's where the merchant is right losing their money is those card not present transactions Mm -hmm. and because of that they both of those, the issuer and the merchant, they just have competing interests, really. That is unfortunately what happens, I think. And not that every issuer just completely ignores card or not present fraud because it does cost money to do a chargeback and it does can make for a bad customer experience to have fraud happen on your card and have to go through that process. It's not something that The bank wants the customer to experience. But I think one thing I've observed, especially like from the merchant side of things is how much each group, whether it be the merchant or issuer, how they each have their, their blinds, blindness Mm -hmm. to things, Mm -hmm. they each kind of have that area that they just, they're, they, they can't see. And for an issuer, it's, if I'm the issuer, I don't know what was bought. I don't know where it was shipped. Right. I don't know what email address was associated with it. I don't know what device ID, what IP address, if that's a known customer or not. I don't know anything other than the merchant name, the date, and dollar amount of the transaction. Right. The MCC code. I'm, I'm completely blind to all of that other information. And then if I'm the merchant, I know all of that information, but I don't know anything about the customer. I don't know who that card belongs to. I don't know... Their behavior. I don't know if the issuer has recently seen some fraud or is suspicious. So there's like just these big blind areas. Has and I think that's an area where a lot of work. There's a lot of opportunity to bridge that gap. And there's been some folks out there in the industry that have tried to do that
0: i was one of them <laughs> on the project but you know but yeah it, you know I, it was like pushing yeah, you know a huge rock up a hill and you had to get both sides it was so much but i i was working at a startup you know that actually worked yeah. with your former company as well to try to get merchants and issuers to share that kind of information with the blind spot of each with each other and i think it was the right Project, maybe the wrong organization to take it on, but I did everything I could to try to make that happen. Let's be honest like Visa and MasterCard with 3D Secure and 2.0, they're trying as well, but there are are downsides to that as well. And some would argue that the entity that wins more than anyone through 3D Secure is the card brands because they're piecing all that data together and they're the ones that get own that data. So, um, not knocking them, yes. just saying that is a common yes. frustration when we broach that. But I can just hear people from the car brands or from certain companies yelling uh, into their, you know, AirPods or their their, their car stereo. You got three D secure; it's it's not really the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, just as well as anyone. That there's been a lot of attempts, right, to try to put some mm. things in place, but. There just really hasn't been anything that is, has really taken hold, right? Mm-hmm. To help bridge that gap. And like again, I think and this is just my personal belief. I think the, the liability factors play into it a lot. The e-commerce space is also very fast moving. Anytime you add customer friction in, oh yeah. Um is not a good thing typically. No. The credit card space is highly competitive. Right. Literally, also, about what
0: I was about to yeah. say. When I was doing that project, I had to learn. I knew what merchants cared about and so that I could speak to really easily. But I had to learn well, why would issuers want to work with merchants? And I had some antiquated views about thinking mm-hmm. that they wouldn't want to in- or that they would want to increase interchange and that they wouldn't want to give a discount or different things like that. And what I learned is that the number one goal, and this is primarily with issuing banks in the U.S. over, you know, in Europe and Latin and other places. One consumer may have three credit cards, but most of them are all with the same bank. Here is the average U.S. consumer has six to eight credit cards and they're mostly with all different banks. That the is- number one issue or goal is to be top of wallet. They want their card to be the one that's on file with Amazon and Walmart and even Netflix, well, yes. all of them. And so I would learn that. Okay, this is what they want. Okay, merchants, if you we were to give you cardholder name and a little bit of this, would you be able to let you know this bank know? when they're no longer top of wallet. So maybe they can send a push notification or a incentive to their, co- like it was really like UN peace talks. But <laughs> I learned so much during that, that project that was, I'm grateful for all the learnings, but sad that it didn't go where he wanted it to. But but I think that's something that, that merchants don't think about, right? Is, and And it can be frustrating as an e-commerce merchant. Why did you authorize this transaction? If you're the one seeing the behavior. And you probably know this is really risky. This particular cardholder doesn't usually ever shop online and all of a sudden spending thousands of dollars online very quickly. Why are you not doing it? Well, maybe it's because they want to top a wallet. Maybe it's because that's what builds the resentment. And I think yep, my absolutely. goal in having these conversations is to try to add a little more understanding and, and empathy so that at least we can inform our resentment. No, hopefully at the end of the day, it's actually to build that, tear that part down. But being able to know sometimes merchants do some stuff too, right? Like it's not just, they're not always the victim, but it's easy to feel like the merchant gets screwed every way to Sunday. That's when you're on the CMP side. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can remember this was years ago when I was had that locks prevention investigator job at Chase where we would call merchants up and- not only was that like my first time interacting with merchants, so this is back before like websites and apps, right? Yeah. If you wanted to make a, like, we still call things like Modo. Modo. Right?
0: <laughs> Mail order, telephone yeah. order for those yeah. that are not a you know, that was behind. <laughs> that was the distinction. Modo. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was back when people
1: like literally made like phone orders. Mm-hmm. Or like email was starting to become a popular method of ordering things. And we would have, I would be calling up these mom and pop. Small companies in the middle of nowhere USA who had a seventeen thousand dollar charge on a Chase credit card and come to find out it was a phone order or an email order. The merchandise is already shipped. Mm-hmm. And I'm the bearer of bad news that they're getting a charge back for seventeen thousand dollars.
0: And that and it's person like doesn't matter and that when really didn't know. They if had the card isn't present, it's on me. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. No, they had no idea that, oh, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Or yeah, no, they had no idea about their fraud liability. And we had to have the talk off of, you need to talk to your acquirer. Mm-hmm. Your bank there. But yeah, I remember times leaving merchants in tears because for a small little mom and pop place, big hits and it's just, yeah. And that's obviously just magnified today with the the explosion in, you know, the e-commerce world and, and what that's, that's brought. I get, I, yeah, I have a soft spot for the merchant yeah. because of those experiences where it's like, oh, uh, you got to be kidding me. It's terrible. so And
0: I started out my on the payment processing side for an uh, acquirer and same kind of thing, had to have some of those conversations. And I would argue yeah. that there are a lot of processors that still to this day are not doing the best job at advising their merchants, especially these smaller ones, these solopreneurs, these small businesses online who are seeing other companies do it and they're not seeing the behind the scenes of chargebacks and they just don't know. I've had a pretty firm conversation with a very large processor that does a lot of these types of accounts and and payment processing for smaller companies saying, you need to have an ebook or something that says, hey, this is how to prevent that. If this happens, it's on you, first of all, just because yep. your customer yep. calls their bank doesn't mean their bank is footing the bill. And second of all, like, here are some things you can do to try to prevent that. And then if it does come, here's what to do. I, It's frustrating. So we're still not where I think we should be, but there are a lot of e-com companies that have realized it is very much in their best interest to invest in teams and humans as human infrastructure, as well as technology to be able to, uh, prevent as much as the, as they can on the financial impact of it because of that liability for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and I know you've covered this recently, especially like mom and pop restaurants <laughs> with COVID and taking phone orders mm-hmm. and they've never made mm-hmm. it before. And not realizing their liability for those mm-hmm. orders and how fraudsters and others have taken advantage of that. And a great example of where, you know, no one educated them. And yeah. hey, by the way, if you start taking these phone orders, Yeah. they're liable for these transactions if they turn out to be fraud. They were used to just having people in their restaurant and Right, they did
0: a transaction. They had, yeah. they probably never had a chargeback in, in their life. Maybe and if they gone. did, it was like, but yeah, one off. And there's somebody gone. even will recognize the name. Yeah, right, maybe right. A stolen card mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. But
1: yeah, these people have no idea how mm-hmm. to manage the chargeback process.
0: And there are a lot of people who are taking advantage of the fact. They're just thinking, oh, if I claim that that the meat was bad or rancid in this meal and I I can get the whole thing back, they're not thinking it's a small business. And maybe even if they did know that, they wouldn't care, but... I do think there's yeah. a lot of people who are in that friendly fraud area, or just the unethical and moral. They don't really realize who's being impacted at the end of the day. That maybe if they knew that, they wouldn't think they were so much sticking it to the man. A lot of them are like, "Oh, my big bank. They've got lots of money. I don't care." Exactly. Yeah. The average person just, I think, probably
1: assumes the bank the loss so or the trips.
0: We on the merchant side get a little frustrated by that. Like, you guys get to be the hero. You're going to be, oh sure, here we'll give you your money back. Yeah. but then you're too yeah, exactly and you and I could joke about it but it's that you and I both also know that there are there's truth in that for some issuers and then there's also truth on the other side too so I think it's always a spectrum with everything right where there's going to be some issuers that really genuinely don't care of course they're going to be like, all day long if it's a CMP transaction will approve everything and turn everything into a chargeback and then there are others that are a little bit, they try, but then they have to be the bad guy too. So it's, nobody wants to be the bad guy because they want the customer to be happy and keep spending money on their credit card or keep spending money on their website. So it's definitely a tug of war for sure.
1: It, it it definitely is. It definitely is. And my experience that firsthand at, at Chase, I used to work for Chaseman Bank, which they JP Morgan and now is the largest issuer. Yeah. But that, what that growth did to like the fraud folks and challenged us to think of new ways to, it wasn't just, a, it wasn't all about stopping as much fraud as you possibly could. That was not our marching orders at the end of the day in fraud. Mm-hmm. It was... Stop as much fraud as you can without impacting the customer experience negatively.
0: That's they, what the march is doing side t- I think we can all relate to that too. Stop as much fraud as you can, as long as it's not people that are going to spend a lot of money in lifetime value or that it doesn't impact anyone else. Yeah. And yeah, we under understanding that big picture, I think can be very beneficial, but also being able to have enough information to push back a little bit and say, yeah, I get that. But then there's other things at play too, right? It's not just about finances. It's about customer trust. It's about our brand reputation. It's about these different things, uh, and all it takes is one tweet that that we didn't stop the fraud and we should have, and now we're the bad guy too. So it's really, I don't know. It's like yeah. dancing on lava. Or- no. something. <laughs> no, absolutely. And
1: I've definitely seen over my years where there's been a increase or push to have the customer or in the case of a card issuer, the card holder be more involved in their security and fraud protection, whether that be just, I remember at Chase, like whenever someone was an identity theft victim, we would mail them a pamphlet that provided them, here's the phone numbers to call. Here's how to, you know, contact the credit bureaus. Here's how to put a fraud alert on your credit report, provide them some, you need to do this. To help us help you, and then it's gotten in this technical world. You can, most issuers now, you can block your card by just the push of a button, right on your app. So really giving the customer much more control over fraud and making them much more aware of when it happens. And and a lot of that is there's been all these right publicly uh, these big data breaches now. Oh, and there be uh, the Target breach that I think started it all. To just, I think people are just much more aware of it, and mm-hmm. to a certain extent, I think that helps us fraud people because I think customers are becoming more and more in tune with yes, fraud happens. Right. They know the bank or merchant needs to stop it when it does, and I think are much more understanding of some of the things that get put in place to to try to help prevent fraud. Customers are becoming much more used to maybe needing to verify a little extra information, a little bit more understanding when things just need some more additional verification. Cause I think so many of us have been on the other end of that where yeah. we get a, a fraud event and go, why didn't they stop this? And it, right. so I think that's helped over the years where you bring the, the the customer more into the fraud prevention aspect of it is we the bank can only do so much. We need your help. And we would do that at Chase when especially when someone was like the victim of an account takeover where you know, their Chase login credentials were stolen from them. Mm. However, it happened. But you have to walk them through not only creating a new online account, but then probably shouldn't use that Yahoo email anymore. You need to create a new email, change your passwords. Yeah. You know, walking them through all of those things that people need to do when they've been had those identity theft situations happen. So Mm. I think that's been like a helpful aspect of it is just so many more people are just aware of fraud and identity theft these days that it's helped make it a little bit easier to, I think, for fraud folks to
0: justify putting a little extra friction. Right. A little extra tiny bit. Right. You know, I think Well, we see that in Europe, right? They're so uh, the consumer. And I
1: think just, I think people thought that the tap, the tapping your we tried to roll that out here in the United States, like four or five (laughs) years ago, and it just failed. And then we have a pandemic and it's okay. Now everybody does it. So it's, it's just sometimes it's changing customers' behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The downside of that though, is that obviously fraudsters are getting keen on that too. I've talked to a couple of big merchants recently that have now there are, and there's one that's pretty public and been in headlines of the Amazon scam, but there's a few others that are seeing are experiencing these too that I haven't seen in headlines yet, but I'm not going to be the one that blows that out on this episode. Anyway, I'm not getting in trouble with their comms teams, but where actually your now co Shannon Slaughter shared this on our podcast almost a year ago, and I just saw a FTC warning about it. The other day, and I was like, Shannon Chuck talked about that on Fraudology, <laughs> <No. laughs> where Amazon frauds or scammers are making calls, impersonating Amazon fraud detection and saying there was a fraudulent transaction on your account. We need you to download this app so we can provide you a refund. And it then compromises their banking credentials and they're draining the bank account. One step forward, one step back or two steps forward, one and a half steps back. But that's part of the love of our, of the game, right? Like it's part of it. It as frustrating as it is. It's also why we like it because it's not easy.
1: No. And I've always been impressed with fraudsters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The way that they, especially the good ones that are very well organized, know a right like business def- defenses better than the bank does. I, I remember listening to like fraud, fraudster calls a chase mm-hmm. where so the fraudster literally knew the workflow that the system was putting the customer yeah. service agent through better than the agent knew it.
0: The agent, yes,
1: they do, yes, they do. And it's just, it's funny, but it just goes to know it just how important it is for us fraud fighters to try to work as closely as the fraudsters do and be as organized and as full of information. But that was one thing that at Chase that I really, one thing I really liked was our investigations team was housed within the credit card line of business. Mm. So instead of having a corporate security investigations team that some banks do, we were part of the business, and what I liked about that was I felt like we, we knew so much about the business. And so we knew how things are supposed to work, what the business's goals and objectives were. We knew about the new products, the new marketing. We were involved with a lot of those things from the beginning, and it helped I think prevent a lot of big fraud attacks or fraud attacks from becoming super big, and it was just something that always I was always interested in. Really, in all the roles Hmm. that I've ever had in any company, is just understanding the business aspect of it because I don't think you can be a good like fraud practitioner for whatever company you're working for without understanding that company business,
0: right? Yeah, and your business goals too. And that's something I absolutely advise a lot of merchants on if they're frustrated that they're they feel like they're. They feel like they're shoved in a corner or locked in a basement. Are you aligning your fraud team and and your KPIs with your business's goals? Is your business's goal to add more accounts or is it to add more sales? Is it to be able to IPO next year? And then how do you work in that? I think that's the, sometimes it can be hard for us to see the forest through the trees, but I think that's how we can get out of our own way a little bit more. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think understanding your business's goals and objectives can help you in fraud and risk space. Help make align your fraud goals to the business's goals and objectives. Because it's a balance that we were talking about. There's yeah. that balance between we were always trying to let customers use their card but also stop the fraud. Uh, yeah, the
0: joke is, right, you can always, you can stop 100% of fraud. You just have to stop 100% of sales. And also remembering that the good guys, the good legitimate sales or the good legitimate cardholders are the ones that pay your paycheck and they're the ones that will contribute to your 401k and all of that. It's not you're you're protecting your business. You're more revenue protection than fraud prevention. And that's something I've been preaching more and more on the podcast recently. So speaking of collaboration, you mentioned it and I couldn't agree more that one of the reasons why fraudsters are good is that they work together a lot. And I'm so big on that. And I know you are, too. That's how we got to know each other. And you and your colleagues when you were at Capital One were great about attending at least one annual conference for online merchants and working with them are year-round when you could. But to be honest, you are the only issuer I know of that has made an effort to work with and learn from ecom merchants. What do you think, were, or why, sorry, do you think that more issuers don't make an effort to work with other entities on fraud-related cases Or issues within the entire payment ecosystem. I'm not just talking about merchants and issues. There's payment processors, there's card brands, there's all the different entities, and then there's sub entities within each of those. And why do you think they don't do it more? And then how can we change it? We could could have (laughs) two episodes just on this topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great, great question. And one thing that I, I really enjoyed about Capital One was How open they were to that collaboration, whether it be within the card industry or within the merchant, especially within the merchant world. When I was at Chase before that, I I think we did a little bit of collaboration, but Chase's business model was a little bit different because Chase had a huge merchant acquirer business. Yes. Yeah. And they still do. And so I think that drove some of the collaboration, right? You were collaborating with the merchants that were... Acquired with Chase, those outside of the Chase world where Capital One didn't really have that acquirer business the way Chase did. And for whatever reason, they were just more open to that collaboration. And I think part of it is just the, the business's philosophy on things really. For example, at Chase and at Capital One, like in our fraud investigations world, which The folks, like at Capital One, the folks that interacted with the merchants were actually part of that fraud risk team that I was a part of. There was a a culture of collaboration, a culture of collaborating with law enforcement, with collaborating with other issuers on investigations and different prevention issues, collaborating with merchants. It was just a culture that they had of collaboration. It came from the top down and it, it wasn't even something that was like said, it was just Done, and it was the way things were done. Chase was a little bit that way too. Where when I was at Chase, I didn't have to go ask my boss, "Hey, I think I'm going to start collaborating with these merchants." It was just the right, yeah, and it was like natural. But I know I've had colleagues at other issuers where they just they didn't have that culture. It was not. It was much more buttoned up. We're going to keep things to ourselves. We're for whatever reason afraid to share information to just work with others. And so I think. Part of it is just a culture thing for mm. different issuers and banks where and it, it might be the
0: same way with even some merchants where it's just oh yeah the way they There's do things, you know. Obviously, uh, especially the biggest guys, they don't wanna work yeah, with you know and sometimes that's to their detriment, but at the same yeah, time conflict. it's a culture thing to your point. So totally get yeah, that. It is in and-
1: and and thankfully, I've been on the good side of that culture.
0: Right, right. I've
1: benefited from having that openness to where there are just so many investigations that I could think of that would not have been possible without the collaboration of other issuers and of merchants. It just yeah. wouldn't have happened. And
0: Do you have an example of that that's like right at the top of your head that you could share?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember we had a big case in Southern California. This was when I was at Chase where it was credit cards that were going bust out. So for folks that don't know what that is, that's just where somebody just goes out to max out the credit line of the credit card with, you know, having no ability or wanting to pay it and mm.
0: they'll usually not be in in card but no so right. a lot of these are
1: going to be like synthetic identities Some more just real identities and they're just gonna get as much money out of the bank as they possibly can and what they'll do is they'll throw a bad payment in or two to mm-hmm. increase the credit limit it might be a $50,000 card that ends up with a $100,000 balance Mom. at the end of it and so what we were seeing was a lot of this type of activity where all these transactions were happening at a large wholesale merchant merchant location <laughs> in Southern California that had the word "club" in the name, <laughs> and a big wholesale club. Yep, and mm-hmm. just these really large transactions. It does, and we are scratching our head's like, what in the world are they buying? What are to be rolling out of these stores? Some of these transactions were like 15, 17, $20,000. Wow. Ridiculous. And you're like, what is going on here? Thankfully, I had built these great relationships Mm -hmm. with the investigations team from this merchant that all it did was take one quick phone call. Hey, what is going on here? And within 24 hours, it was, oh, they're buying cigarettes.
0: Uh, oh, and then probably taking them over state lines. And it's kind of a well, when they're buying it tax free, right? <laughs> oh,
1: yep. Mm-hmm. Cause you're, they're supposed to be buying it for like their convenience, for their store, business, right. Is right. right. that right. And you would tax, you would tax the consumer. Yeah. Purchasing the cigarettes. So it's, hold on, what? They're buying <laughs> cigarettes? That's, That's crazy. crazy. You know, again, the things that
0: these fraudsters. Oh put, yeah. Right. Yeah. Cig- like you're telling me big screen TVs, like car through one of those. You have card club. You had a, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah.
1: But he was nice enough to throw in a couple of just like screenshots from video of literally pushing out a cart. Wow. Stacked with cartons of cigarettes. And you're like, this is crazy. And so that just kicked off this just really fun great investigation with you know federal law enforcement with the investigations team from this retailer and multiple other issuers that were also impacted but it ended up being like these guys bought like 25 30 million dollars worth of cigarettes over the course of 30 months wow uh, Crazy. and basically what they were doing was they were then taking the cigarettes and reselling them to one of the real Wholesalers. Oh,
0: okay. And if you think about it, they bought the cigarettes for free, basically. Even mm-hmm. if you're selling them for, and they have $10. no intention of paying off this credit card. They got no right.
1: intention of paying these credit cards back. So it's just a hundred percent profit for everybody. Just right. for profit. And so that was one where it was just like a, a great relationship with that merchant made for really quick work. The investigation took a long time. Well,
0: um, uh, But you were able to figure out what was going on pretty quickly.
1: you know, you were, yeah, you were able to figure out what was going on very quickly. That particular merchant, great investigations team, a great partner Mm -hmm. with that. But there's just tons of those stories, merchants big and small. I found a lot of merchants were just excited to talk to somebody from like the issuer.
0: Oh, and you guys are actually investigating something. Because there's obviously an an impression on the merchant side. And I do want to say that I think that is partially why some issuers stay away is that they're worried either because they have actually done this or that they're afraid they're going to be accused of it, uh, of approving too many transactions that they know are risky or not approving or not accepting enough charge facts that they should. Or because the liabilities on that side, I know I have tried to invite some card brands to merchant only events to want to be able to provide merchants with that insight. And I've been told we need to look at the list. We need to know who's talking. And we we need you to set down all these rules that there's not going to be any pitchforks, that nobody's going to be upset at us. It's hold on. I can create as much of a culture of collaboration as I can, but I think we do need to be able to have those conversations. Now, I will also ask the other side to be respectful in that and understand that this isn't a personal thing. This isn't that person doing this. It's a business. But I think that to your point with that story and with so many other stories that you have, I think that what I would love for issuers to understand is that the payoff is better than the risk, right? The the reward is better than the risk. The ability to be able to pick up the phone and call them or to understand what they're seeing. So when you start to see weird behavior, you're like, oh, I bet that's what's happening over here. But that's card testing. I bet that's this. I bet it's really, each side has a different piece of the puzzle. And if we just put it together, whether that is on specific cases or overall trends and patterns, the reward far out- outweighs the risk in obviously my biased opinion. But I think you're living <laughs> proof of that, too. And to that point, like I remember one of the times, and I think it may have been one of the first times we worked together, I was working with a merchant who was seeing just crazy baby. We couldn't figure out what was going on where they were these large dollar transactions. And I had heard from a couple merchants saying this, and this was a few years ago, large dollar transactions. And but they got, AVS was a match. Everything was mm-hmm. good from the bank. The bank said, yes, this is a good transaction. And other things that the merchant did to quantify risk were fine. And so they had every reason based on what the information was that came back from the bank to think the cardholder made the purchase. But then they get yeah. a fraud charge back and it turned out that the fraudster had called the bank and been able to dupe the, the, you know, person at the call center, which we know can happen and taken over or just added an address. And you were able yeah, to I help d- fill in the blank so yeah. fast because we were over here scratching yeah. our heads. Yeah. 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 Now. Unfortunately, in some of the cases, those chargebacks still had to be paid for by the merchant. So we're not here to relitigate the fairness of that because it is very challenging when you're the one responding to the chargeback to be able to prove that somebody else didn't do their job. All you can do is prove that you did your job. But and. I threw everything I had in those templates and some of the issuers accepted them and others didn't. And they were almost exactly the same <laughs> case. It just goes right back to the subjectivity of the chargeback process. But you know, that was a time where I was like, wow, I'm not, I've been on the merchant side for 13, 14 years at that point and had never seen an issuer want to tell me, hey, you know what? We probably did this or this is probably what happened with the issuer you're talking about. And that really, it shouldn't. I don't mean this to sound bad but it shouldn't stand out like i think more people should be like you and the uh, i was about to name them but i'm not going to the other people that work either currently or used to be at cap one with you but that was such a value and then i was always happy if you guys were to reach out and say hey do you know someone at this company that's an Easiest email for me to write. Hey, somebody at a large issuer wants to talk to you about a case. They're so excited. They love that way more than some of the other things I reach out to them about. Now when I have to say, like, Hey, the FBI or the Secret Service has reached out to me, because you know, I they also know I know a lot of people, then they're like, Oh shoot, what did we do? But <laughs> usually though it's actually it's a good thing but but that's always a good one yeah if you were to talk to other issuers i think that you've answered this already but actually no i'm gonna you did already answer that what is one of the biggest misconceptions you think that online merchants have about issuers when it comes to to online fraud
1: that's a good question I, i think probably just a common one is that the issuer just doesn't care about stopping you know, right. like for, for whatever reason. And I think it's a unfair general characterization of issuers. But at the same time, we all have a finite amount of resources. And it's only natural to put your resources in an area where you might be losing money. Because of that, again, I worked for the largest issuer and we had 12 high-level investigators. That was it. We couldn't investigate everything. And so you just have some limitations on you. It's not that you just seek out to go, oh, we're, we don't care about the online fraud. There were a lot of cases I investigated that included online. There were cases I investigated where we Chase didn't even take a loss. The e-commerce merchant did, but it was still a significant case to us. Because right. Because of the maybe number of customers involved. Or the type of fraud that might have been happening. Right. Now, unfortunately, not every maybe issuer takes that approach to things, but Mm. we definitely did. We didn't just go, oh, it's an online charge. Right. Not even going to care about it. But yeah, I think it's just a difficult situation for a lot of issuers because, especially the large ones, Mm. you have so many transactions. You have so many claims of fraud a month and you only have so many resources. Yeah. You just have to... You know, it, it unfortunately it is really easy to do an automated chargeback mm-hmm. on an e-commerce transaction. It used to be. I remember we have to we used to have to physically have the customer sign. We call them affidavits, and then we call them affirmations. Right, where list yeah. the fraud charges. They had to sign it, and we needed that to do a chargeback. But years ago, Visa changed the rules and said, "Oh, I
0: remember what year are that. Him <laughs> verbal you know,
1: verbally telling you. Hey, I didn't make that charge, was good enough to fulfill that requirement. And that kind of opened the floodgates to, you really didn't have to have a human
0: look at that fraud claim before processing the chargeback. Right. You know, and that's the some- fastest call time for a customer service yeah. agent too. And I say that yeah, often yeah. to my clients on chargebacks. Like the reason why maybe only 60% of your fraud reason code chargebacks now are true fraud, or sometimes it's even flipped and only 40% of that, when you research it and reverse engineer it, do a review, are actually a case where the payment method was stolen. It's because fraud became a catch-all in 2011 when, or was it 2012? It was one of the two, because I remember where I was working when, I think it was, yeah, it was 2011 when an affidavit was no longer needed. And now there's a follow-up, right? If a cardholder's claiming that an item wasn't received, they have to, or if it wasn't as described, that's a better example. They have to provide, well, what did you expect? What did you get? They have to follow up. And now yeah. just fraud in general, it's nope. We can just take your word for it. And to your point, yeah, it can also be automated where they don't have to call. They can just do it in their account. Or the issuer can say, I think it looks like the card was stolen on the 10th. So any transaction from the 10th on or the 9th on. Yeah. Yeah. And I laugh, but it's the bane of a lot of our existence on the merchant side. But it's helpful to understand just context, right? That there's not necessarily maliciousness involved. It's scale, it's volume, it's trying to balance all the needs that your business has. But I would imagine that on the issuer side, you don't want your cardholders to think that your cards aren't safe either and that the bank isn't protecting them either. So it's balancing that, right? You don't want to a cardinal. Oh, yeah. Why didn't you know that I don't make these kind of purchases? Why didn't you stop them? So it's trying to look at all the nuance. It's not, it's just not, you could lose a
1: customer just as easily because you didn't accept their fraud claim mm. or their dispute versus one that actually had a bunch of fraud happen. And now they're, they don't feel safe, right? Or secure with your bank. And you, you have both situations that you have to, To balance and try to have a great customer experience for. Because, like you said earlier on, the credit card business is super competitive. And that also means that someone can just pick up and start using someone else's card tomorrow. And that goes back to what we were talking before understanding your business and what you're trying to accomplish can tell you a lot about how you need to approach things for fraud. That's a
0: great. Hard to end on so you happen to know I still have quite a few questions that came in from my LinkedIn from uh, merchants that listen to the um, podcast and some other things we want to talk about I would really love to have you come back next week and we can finish this up on we'll make it a two-parter episode if you're good with that I think Everyone's really yeah, gonna absolutely going yeah. to enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and, and know it's precious, but I think that this is such a good gift to the industry and fun for us to geek out as well, of course. So yeah, you and I will schedule it to hop on another call next week. And for the listeners, we will be back with even more great topics with Robbie next week. I just know you guys that you're going to want to hear more. So we'll do that on the fly. And Thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation next week.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Me too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely.